Well, good morning, everyone. I have uh, just really enjoyed making our way through the book of Daniel, and part of uh, the complement to this series have been some of these good faith videos. You might recall that we began with a testimony from Jason Staten talking about uh, a difficult decision that he had to make in good faith in the work world. And we also captured a different uh, part of the picture when we looked at good faith at work, and several of our members discussed what does it look like to work in a secular world and yet be the light and love of Jesus in that place. And of course, as we're ending this series today, we're, we're just looking at it now from another angle, parenting. You know, more and more today, parenting requires good faith decisions. Some of the parents in the video talked about educational decisions that they've made, whether it was to homeschool, to use a, a Christian school. And, and some of our parents I know also have their kids in, in the public schools. And I think one of the big good faith decisions they're making in that arena is they have regular heart check-in conversations with their kids. They're asking their kids, where are you at? How are you doing spiritually? And, and just really seeing God work in their life by checking in with them in that way. So faith, good faith, involves all different aspects of our life as we're seeing in the book of Daniel. And we're going to bring this series to conclusion today. Uh, we've been looking at the first six chapters of Daniel, and, and Bible scholars call these the, the court narratives of Daniel. So these are the stories of Daniel's life when Daniel was involved in the inner circle of two major empires, the Babylonians and the Persians. And this morning, we'll pick up with the story in Daniel chapter 6. So if you will, open your Bibles with me to Daniel 6, and we'll pick up where we left off. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I love a good adventure. I just love all aspects of a big adventure. Now, there's certain things that I won't do in terms of adventure. You hit me in a corner and you say, hey, let's go skydiving and bungee jumping. And the answer always is going to be no. I'm not doing that with you. You can go do that on your own. I know some of you have some issues of impulse control and that kind of stuff. Go do your thing. I'm not involved in that. But I do have plenty of other things that I would love to do. One of my bucket list wish items is I want to hike the Appalachian Trail through Hike It. So what does that involve? Well, it's an epic adventure, isn't it? It's 2,190 miles of just pure raw hiking. Uh, you, you cross through, I think it's 13 states, it's 14 states all together. You can start in Maine and make your way to Georgia or vice versa. They say that the hike is just continuous mountainous terrain. So if you hike from start to finish, you've basically hiked sea level to summit of Mount Everest 16 times while you're doing the hike. And here's another fact that I just think is cool. Um, it takes the average person some five to seven months to complete the trip. So I'm not going to be going anytime soon because I just don't have that kind of space, but I would love to do this. There is one factor with all of those adventure aspects that causes me to pause when I think about this particular trip, and it's this. Only one in four people complete it. One in four! 
Who set out to through-hike the Appalachian Trail, make it the entire way? Now, there's a lot of reasons why people stop, some due to injury, others because they ran out of money along the way. Remember, Jesus said you got to plan the build, you know, on the front end before you engage in the build. Well, some people didn't do that. Other people have family issues arise. But I think one of the big reasons that people end up not completing the trail is that somewhere along the way, they lose perspective. You say I had these dreams these ideals of what it would be like to be on the trail and what it would take to make it from start to finish. 75% can't do it. 25% can. Now, if you're setting yourself up to go on the trail, which group do you think we should be keenly interested in? The 75 or the 25? Well, I would suggest that we should study how the 25 do it. You know, in the life of faith, I think it's very similar. I, I think that the Bible presents certain models to us of people who lived this life of faith well. And as a Christian, as I, I look at their life, I should be intensely interested in how they went about the life of faith. And as I look at Daniel's story, I've got to tell you, I'm locked in. I'm laser-like focused on this guy. I'm thinking about Daniel in terms of the other Jews who went with him to Babylon. And, and one of the big questions I have of the story is, how did those other Jews fare in this situation? And I have a big feeling that many of them were actually in the camp of the 75 and not the 25. I, I then take the story and then and I translate it into our day and age, and I ask the same question. How many of us, as society secularizes, as society says that faith is irrelevant and extreme, will make it through the hike? Now, I've been walking with Jesus for quite some time in my life. I've been in church my entire life, and I've got to tell you, I've watched a lot of people start with the aspiration of through hiking in the life of faith. And I've also watched many people fall away. I almost was one of them at 17 or 18. So again, I'm just laser-like focused on Daniel. How did he do it? What, what sorts of things were different about the life of Daniel than maybe so many other people who set out on the life of faith and didn't complete it? Well, let's look at the story, and we'll bring it all to a conclusion today. We'll pick up with the first three verses of Daniel 6. The story begins, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Remember, last week we were looking at Daniel's story, and we noted that Daniel had been sidelined for some 23 years. So from the age of like 16 through the age of 57, he's at the center, and then Nebuchadnezzar dies, Daniel is moved to the periphery. He's called back into the game by God on the night that Belshazzar's kingdom falls, and now he is brought deeply into the center under the rule of Darius. Now, who is this Darius, the king of the Medes? 
A lot of commentators and scholars look at history, and there's just not much about this guy in history. And so they, they question, who is he? Where did he come from? How is he a part of this story? Is he even a real figure, some of them ask? Well, there's a lot of ideas and theories about who he is. But I think the best understanding of who he is, actually, is that Darius and Cyrus, the king of Persia, are the same person. Uh, Kings in this time would have multiple titles. And you would think that if two major kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians, are coming together, merging as one kingdom, that someone would come from both peoples. And it turns out that Cyrus had a father who was Persian and a mother who was from the Medes. Now, I believe that Daniel sticks with the title Darius, the king of the Medes, because the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah prophesied that the Medes would be the ones who would conquer Babylon. And so he's making a big theological point in saying this to us, that God's word proves true. Here's another thing about this story as we're just picking it up. Isn't it incredible how Daniel interfaces with these administrations that come and go? Now, between Nebuchadnezzar and then those four kings and now Darius, I think one thing proves true throughout. Daniel gave it his best under each administration. Do you think that this guy agreed with every policy of every king? Do you think that he liked some of the kings better than the others? You betcha he did. But I got to tell you, Daniel was not politically minded. He was kingdom minded. And as a Christian, we know that no matter who's in charge, whether it's an administration or a boss or a company, that under any of these leadership structures that we're not ultimately accountable to them and we're not ultimately giving them our first priority. We're ultimately giving who? Jesus our first priority, right? So the same verse applies no matter what the situation is. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now notice what that verse is not saying. It doesn't say, work heartily as long as you like their management style. Or, work heartily as long as you always agree with the decisions that they make. Or, work heartily as long as you get that pay raise that you knew was coming to you. No. It always says the same thing. Work heartily as unto Jesus. Be that same God-honoring, society-influencing, Bible-saturated Christian that you're called to be, no matter the administration. Now, here's the thing. As Daniel lived like this, there was an attractive quality to his life. And as we know with magnets, there is a positive end and there is a negative end when it comes to attraction. And so for these kings and these higher officials, they loved Daniel. They loved his work ethic. They loved his brilliance. But at the same time, there was a set of old problems that always followed Daniel. All of his contemporaries hated him because of who he was and what he represented. And we see the same thing take place in this Persian Empire, verses 4 and 5. Then the high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. 
But they could, not find, they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Verse 5, then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Now, here is two remarkable things that we can take away from these verses about Daniel's good faith. The first is this, Daniel's good faith was not something personal or private to himself. It was an external kind of faith. Daniel wasn't ashamed of who he was in God. In fact, everything about Daniel had this fragrance of his faith. It was like he was wearing a cologne or a perfume, if you will. Every time he walked into a place, there was the smell of faith in God all over him, whether it was in his words or his actions, or even where his ultimate loyalties lie. And again, some people smelled that aroma, and they thought it was really good. And other people smelled it and they couldn't stand it. Well, Paul says that the same thing would be true of us as we follow Christ in this world. Remember what he said in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16? He said, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. So know this, believer, as you walk with God, there's always going to be an attraction about you. There's always going to be a fragrance or aroma. Sometimes people will view it as positive. Other times people will view it as negative. But no matter the situation, we stay true to God. Now, the second thing that I think is remarkable is Daniel's good faith was the only grounds upon which he could be accused. Now, think about this situation. There's this concerted, concentrated, coordinated effort to take Daniel down. Now, I don't believe that it was all 120 satraps that were involved in this, but think about it. If there's any chink in Daniel's armor, do you think that these people are going to find it? Of course they will. And as soon as they find it, they're capitalizing upon it, and it's going to be all over the front page of the newspaper. So what does that say about Daniel's integrity that they can't find anything? It's bulletproof. Now, here's the thing. Righteousness pays off. It pays dividends. And this is one prime example of that. Proverbs 28, Solomon was remarking on the same thing. And he said, the wicked flee when no one pursues. But the righteous are bold as lions. Why? Because the righteous know when you start digging there's nothing that's going to come to surface. Go ahead, dig away. There's nothing there. Now, there's only one way to accuse Daniel, and they know that it involves the order of his loyalties. His number one priority was to God. That was his commitment level. And may the same thing be said of us. If someone was going to find anything, may it be our commitment to our God. So what do they do? They go to King Darius and they try to create a law that outlaws Daniel's central loyalty. 
Now, verses 6 through 9 read like this, Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, counselors, and governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the lion's den. Verse 8, now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. Now, here's a truth to life. People can use your vanity against you. It's just true. Uh, vain people can have that leveraged against them as they are flattered. And that's exactly what these wise men do, don't they? They, they play to King Darius's vanity, to his pride, and they create a law that handcuffs this sovereign king. Here you have this king that can make any order, any decision he wants, but now once he enforces this rule, he will no longer be able to go back upon which he, that which he had put set into motion into law. And this, this is true. We see this in the history of the Persian Empire. Uh, there was a king later on who actually had a situation where he condemned a man to death only later to find out that the guy was innocent. And he had the guy killed. He repented of it. He regretted that he had made that decision too soon. But the law was the iron law of the Medes and the Persians. You couldn't go back even if you were the king. That's why I find Daniel's actions so inspirational. He knows this iron law. And look at what he does in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. You remember we were asking the question at the beginning, what kind of decisions led Daniel to finish well in his life? What kind of priorities did he establish? What kind of activities did he engage in? And, and as I look at this story, I think right here we, we see the secret sauce to a life well lived. And, and here's the thing, it's not going to be one of those top secret things where you pay $50 and you learn how to lose weight. It's not going to be something novel or exciting as you hear it. A lot of people, when they talk about the life of faith, they, they treat it as if a bunch of spiritual highs will get you through the life of faith. And so they talk about people making like these impulsive decisions because God told them so. Or there's this emotionalism that captivates these people. Or it's just a series of spiritual successes that gets the person through. But here's the thing. I don't see that as I look at the Bible. As I look at the Bible, of course God wants me to make bold decisions by faith. Not impulsive, but bold. And, and I, I would never say that God doesn't want you to feel emotions. In fact, if you have real faith, you will feel deep emotions for God. But what I'm saying here as I look at this passage is that all of those factors that I just described to you tend to lead to faith commitments that fizzle out. Why? 
Because your faith journey is not one long spiritual high. It just isn't. And we know that journeys involve highs and lows, but the main part of the journey always is that flat, neutral place where you're just walking and everything looks the same. But you know you got to keep going because if you're going to through hike in this journey, the direction's that way, and I've got to keep plowing along. So it turns out that the real tried and true stuff requires a steadfast commitment to the daily grind of faith. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean like the grind of prayer and the grind of getting to know God's Word and, and forming spiritual relationships with other Christians where it's not just backyard barbecues where we're having fun together and that kind of stuff. That's good, and we can do that too but where we're actually spiritually integrating into one another's life and challenging one another, encouraging one another. I mean it in the sense of, as a parent, taking your children to church Sunday after Sunday and having regular heart check conversations with them. And in the community, the, the grind of loving and believing and living in the places where I go, whether it's at work or the grocery store or in the intimate context of friends, whatever it is. You know what I call these? I call these the little victories. That's the same mindset that the 25% who through hike have. You know, anyone that makes it through the Appalachian Trail doesn't get at the beginning, whether in Maine and Georgia, and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sprint the first 40 miles of this trip. That would be stupid. Why? Because people with experience know that there's another 2150 miles behind that where you still have to keep plodding along. So how do they go about it? Well, they take the trip one step at a time. They keep an eye on the terrain. They, they evaluate the risks. They, they follow the safety rules, like you don't put your food in your tent because there's black bears on the trail, right? They feed their body the right nutrients. They know that the little victories will lead to the ultimate victory. If you want to make it through, you have to win day after day. It's not about frantic, frenetic bursts of energy. And not only do the little victories keep you going, they also make the difference when life and death is on the line. Now, make no mistake Daniel knew exactly what was going to happen here. He knew that if he prayed that this was the iron law of the Medes and the Persians, he would be heading to death's door. He's the smartest guy in the room. Every time, he knows. But here's what the little victories do along the way. The little victories create what I call relational trust. What is that? Well, it's the trust that is built over time as you keep engaging in a relationship, as you keep showing up in that relationship. It's the kind of trust that, that a child has uniquely with his or her mommy and daddy as opposed to anyone else. 
Because mommy and daddy are the one that I'm waking up to and they're putting me to bed and reading me stories. And over time, I, I just know that they're going to be there for me. And the same is true in my relationship with God as I rack up the little victories with God. When the big moments come, I'm going to trust him because the trust has been built. I think about it in the life of Abraham. Remember that spiritual high that his journey began on? God calls him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and he just, he goes. I mean, what an act of faith. He leaves everything he's ever known, and he goes to this promised land to follow a God he's never known anything about. But here's the thing. Right away in his first couple of moments when he could trust God in a big way, a famine occurs, and what does Abraham do? He runs to Egypt. Why? Because Egypt's safe. He hadn't built up the trust chips with God yet to trust him in a big moment like this. But as Abraham takes his lumps from that occasion, he begins to build trust with God through little victories. And that leads to the type of trust where then Abraham is presented with a capstone moment of faith. Do you remember what that was? God says to him, take your only son, the son that you love, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And from start to finish, Abraham trusts God. The author of Hebrews even says that he believed that if, if, if he sacrificed his son, that God could even raise him from the dead. He had so much relational trust built up in God that he saw it through from start to finish. You know, church, if you want to be faithful in the big moments, you've got to be faithful in the day-to-day little moments. That's how this works. Now, let's ask one more question before we move on past this part of this story. Now, a lot of people look at this passage, and they ask the question, and it's a logical one, was it right for Daniel to break the law? Should he have prayed? Darius made a law, and we've been talking about Romans 13 a lot when it comes to things like wearing masks and saying, okay, we don't need to stand in opposition to the government on this. Romans to obey the government. But here we see a clear example where Daniel is told not to do something and he immediately goes and does it. Remember the story in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and we talked about the, the gesture of refusal, how sometimes Christians need to exercise that gesture. But we also noted that the posture of refusal, making that a way of life, is not good for Christians because then we become known for what we are against and not what we are for. We also saw that the general posture of these guys was one of accommodation towards culture. Change our names? Sure, that's fine. You can do that. Teach us the Babylonian language? Sure, we'll learn it better than anyone else. Um, pick up the, the, the law and language and, and traditions and history, the answer to all of those things is yes. But if you ask us to do something that violates the law of God, the answer is what? No. Not maybe. Not let me think about it. No. You see, in Christian theology, we call this civil disobedience. 
And Christians have practiced civil disobedience throughout history whenever the authority of government tries to overtake or usurp the authority of God. In Christian history, we've seen this in all kinds of contexts. For example, Christians helped runaway slaves on the Underground Railroad. That was illegal back then, but they did it. Earlier in the 20th century, Christians in China formed secret underground churches, even though the communist regime had said, you may not practice this religion in our country. Now, I do believe that at some point, as our culture continues to secularize, we're going to have to make unpopular decisions, even decisions that sometimes might violate the law. Daniel's faith required this. Darius was essentially saying, listen, if you're going to pray to anyone in the land, I'm a mediator. You must funnel those prayers through me, and they'll get to your God. And Daniel says what? No. That's not how this prayer thing works. I don't pray to a man. I pray to my God. And like little children, his enemies are hiding around the corner, peeking, poking, prodding, looking for him to do it. And one thing I appreciate about Daniel in this act of civil disobedience is he's not making a spectacle of himself, and he's not hiding. He's not walking out with a big billboard placard on himself saying, I pray, and Persia can go away, you know, like protesting against them. No. He just does what he always did. He keeps the window open. He's faced towards Jerusalem because he believes that God's going to return the people there. And he prays. And his enemies, of course, go running. Verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. And it's here where the lights turn on in Darius's mind. He understands what this law was all about. And like I said, it's an iron law, so he's set in motion something that he wishes now that he could retract. I'm not going to get into the gory details of what it would be like to be thrown into a lion's den, but let's just know that that would be very painful and gruesome, and Darius has to live with the knowledge that he's done this to this man that he respects, Daniel. In fact, he's so torn up that he prays to Daniel's God, verse 16, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. 
This is, again, an example of Daniel's good faith. He has influence in the upper halls of leadership, doesn't he? I don't know where Darius stood spiritually, but the one thing I do know is that the God he prays to hears prayers just like this. So as Daniel's thrown into the pit, they, they lay this large stone over the pit, and the way that they ensured that no one tampered with the process is they would lay these large chains over the stone, and then they would take soft clay and they would put it over the chains, press it down. King Darius would have taken his signet ring and he would have stamped it into the clay, and when the clay hardened, that became a seal. If anyone tampered with the chains, of course, the seal would be broken, and they would meet a similar fate to that of Daniel. Now, Darius is just convinced that he's just put a man in with hungry lions, and he's going to get devoured. And the passage tells us that he tosses and he turns all night. We pick up at verse 19. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angels and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Now we come to the capstone of Daniel 1 through 6. We've been learning a lot about who this God is that Daniel serves. Uh, one of the dominant truths that we've been looking at can be simply said like this, God is in control. The first several chapters of Daniel establish this theme over and over and over again. God's in control when Daniel is being assimilated into the Babylonian court. Daniel can be faithful to God by not obeying the law of the land, but, all, but eating the kind of food that he knew was kosher or right in God's eyes. And then we see a dream where God shows King Nebuchadnezzar that he is, in fact, leading in history. He's making history unfold according to his will. And then God shows his power and his dominance over the king of Babylon in a series of confrontations, whether it's Daniel 3, when Nebuchadnezzar throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire, or Daniel 4, where he makes King Nebuchadnezzar believe that he is a cow. Over and over and over again, he's saying, listen, my will will not be thwarted. Now, that makes all the difference, doesn't it? Because if God is not in control, then as we go through things in our life, like economic downturns and and COVID, and personal tragedies, and, and torn-up relationships. If there is no God who's in control, then all of those situations are therefore out of control. And the only emotional response that I have or should have towards those situations is anxiety and fear. Because there's no reason to believe that there could be a better outcome. 
But God is in control, and if he's in control, then that means that I can trust him in the midst of that. And, and that leads us to the next truth. You see, this truth, God is in control, mixed with the next truth, should be internalized deeply because it's a personal truth. And what is it? God is faithful. He's faithful. Why does that matter? Well, listen to Daniel's own words. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. So here, Daniel is telling us that even as he goes into the lion's den, he's not afraid. He doesn't feel alone. He knows that his God will not forsake him. That makes all the difference in the world. Now, friends, the Bible is not saying that if you follow God, you will never suffer. That's just not what the Bible says on this topic. I mean, Daniel clearly suffered. He was ripped away from his homeland. He was enslaved his entire life. I'm sure he got sick. I know that he experienced personal tragedy. But through all of that, from start to finish, Daniel saw that God was faithful. He was with him. He didn't let him go. He never forsook him. He even would go through the tragedy with him. And this believer is true of you too. So the big question is, is, is if God is faithful, what does that mean for me? I think two things. First, if God is faithful, then we should be faithful. The key word there is should, which carries the idea of obligation or duty. You should be faithful because God is all in with you. And that means that he deserves the total of your life, everything that you are, not just a compartmentalized aspect of your life, not just a one-hour commitment on a Sunday morning or something like that, but every area of your life, looking, praying, asking, God, help me to be faithful to you. But the second thing that I see is this. If God is faithful, it also means that you can, can be faithful. Now, can carries the idea that something is within the realm of possibilities. Okay, think about this. I think one of the great lies that the enemy is weaving in our culture right now today is this, that it is not possible to be faithful to God. It's too hard. He especially is telling this to our children, to our teenagers, and to our young adults. He tells them things like, no one else is faithful. Well, that's not true. It's just not true. Sure, there's not great numbers of people being faithful, but there are plenty of people that I know that are just downright awesome people who are being faithful. He's also saying the bigger lie, which is it's not possible to be faithful today. There's just too many avenues of temptation, and therefore you can't be faithful. And that's the biggest lie of all. Why? Because if God is in control and he is faithful, that means that he can see you through. That means that your faithfulness doesn't rest in your power and abilities and capabilities, but in God's ability 
and capability to see you through. So that means that you can be faithful by raising your kids to know Jesus. You can be faithful as you represent Jesus at work. You can be faithful by not resigning and not accepting moral values that fall outside of the realm of God's will. But if anything, we can say we're holding fast to this because we know it's true, because God is true. That you can be faithful by consistently pursuing the daily little victories. And yes, you can even be faithful when it seems like your very life is on the line. This is the big idea of Daniel chapter 6. It's the powerful point. And as we see this story brought to conclusion, there's a great turnaround that happens, isn't there? The enemies of Daniel are thrown into the lion's den, and Daniel is commended, and Darius even acknowledges that God is faithful. Look at the last three verses. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So we see that this story is not ultimately a story about prayer, though prayer is very important to it. It's a story about faithfulness, both God's and ours. We ask the question, can we possibly be faithful? Can we possibly be faithful in a society that says, if you're faithful to God, you will be viewed and treated as irrelevant and extreme. And the answer every single time in Daniel is yes. Yes, you can. There's always a reason to be faithful. Because God is always faithful. There's always a way to be faithful. God is in control. There's always a blessing that comes with faithfulness. God rewards faithfulness. As we bring this all together, think about the one quality that will be admired in eternity and the eons and years that will roll past as we go through eternity. And I think it all boils down to this one word, faithful. You know, there's a lot of other words that people are living for today, that people are telling their kids this needs to be true of you, words such as talented, relevant, well-connected, well-liked, successful, sophisticated, respectable, reasonable, brilliant, beautiful, rich. All of those words in heaven will be irrelevant. So let's not teach our kids that that's the most important thing. Let's not aspire for those things ultimately. It's fine to pursue those things in moderation. But I got to tell you, as we are in eternity, the stories that will be told by fireside, the songs that will be sung night by night will be about faithfulness. Faithfulness like we see in Daniel in the lion's den and faithfulness like we pray would be true of us as we take bold stands for Jesus. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, uh, we know that as we talk about this faithfulness, that it is within the realm of possibility because of who you are. You are in control. You are faithful. You have told us in your word that we can be faithful because you are faithful. I pray that over this church, Lord, today, Lord, I I don't care where anyone's been before they entered the room today. I know that many of us have come from different backgrounds, different baggage. The, The point is where we are today, where our heart is today before you. And I ask God, on behalf of my friends and the people I love, that we would be a people found faithful before you, that we would pursue you with all that we are, that we would be faithful because you have been so faithful. We love you, Lord, and we're grateful for all that you've done, especially in giving us your son, Jesus, who died for us. In your name we pray, amen.